Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I actually have something in this container that says Altoids, which is not Altoids. And I would love for you to each take one. So, take one, pass them on, everybody gets one. Just one. They're small, just one. Just take one. We've been talking about the uh, kingdom of heaven, in fact, the parables of Matthew 13. There we go. We've been talking about kingdom of heaven, we've been talking about the parables of Matthew 13 and how Jesus uses the parables and Matthew uses his recording of the parables to help us understand that, that the expectations they had about the kingdom of heaven were very, very different. When you are done with that, can you pass it back up to the front, too, so I can have one? No, not the one you take out, just the container. Um, so we, we've been looking at the fact that, that part of what's happening with the parables is that Jesus tells parables in order to get people's attention, in order to make them encourage them to take a little effort, because the way that they have been thinking of the kingdom of heaven has some flaws in it. Now, it's understandable flaws. It's understandable expectations. They, the picture they have comes from their experience with King David. And that's not a false picture. There are many ways in which David did reflect the kingdom of heaven, in which he did reflect the, the messianic uh, image to come. But there are many ways in which it was also very different. And so by calling it the kingdom of heaven, number one, instead of the kingdom of God, Matthew is making that point. This is different than the earthly kingdoms you're used to. And so Jesus has been using parables uh, to try to shake this crowd out of some of their misconceptions. So for those of you who are not here, I wanted you to know what we passed around to everybody. And uh, you may not even be able to see it because it's very small. It's just, and I don't think I can tip it without letting it all go, but it's just rice. So everybody got one grain of rice? Everybody get a grain of rice? I got less than a grain. Well, we don't want you to only have a half grade here. Wow, that's a problem for you. A perfect grade. So uh, everybody got a grain of rice. If you want to uh, get a grain of rice at home, you're welcome to do so. Um, we're going to come back to that grain of rice. It's just a, a, a benchmark for us later to be able to look at. So we've been going through the parables, and Jesus has been changing the expectations of what we've been discovering, at least what I've been discovering, and I hope you have as well is that some of the Israelites' misconceptions are actually very similar to our misconceptions, that we also tend to forget and think about things like they do. Um, for example, he starts with, Matthew really wants us to understand that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of heaven. And that was, would have been hard. The Israelites definitely have been called to be so pure, to be so separate from everything else. And yet, in all of that, God had also always encouraged them to always welcome the foreigner and the stranger and anybody who wanted to be in the kingdom. And so Jesus reiterates, the kingdom of hell, but the heaven is welcome to everyone. And he does that really just by his life, by his example. And Matthew feels it poignantly because Matthew was one of those people who felt like he didn't belong anywhere. And then we learn from the first parable that even though everyone is welcome, not everybody wants it. Not everybody's willing to sort of make the effort to dig in, to, to look for the depth, to, to grapple with the lessons, to empty their cup, whatever it may be. They're not willing to really accept it, hear the message, and let it produce the fruit in them. Even though they're welcome, some people sort of rule themselves out by, their, by not wanting to be there. And then the third lesson, the thing we learned last week, was that it's not your job to weed 
weeding is not your job, that there are weeds that grow up within the kingdom of heaven, but God will sort it out. We are not to be the gatekeepers. We are to simply give the message of the kingdom of heaven to everybody, to welcome everybody, to do our best to love everybody, to share with everybody, to bless everybody. And so that was our third lesson. And today, we come to Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35. Now, let's remember, again, just a reminder, uh, somebody who's here, or frankly, if somebody is, wants to unmute on Zoom and answer this, they can. Where is Jesus as he's telling these parables right now? Who remembers? He's on a boat. That's correct. So Jesus is standing in a boat, and the reason he's standing in a boat is because the crowd is so large, but it's also, frankly, so pressing forward. They're so desirous of being near him. They want to be healed. They want to be touched. They want to be close to him. They're pressing in upon him. By standing in a boat, he gets a little bit of distance, but he also makes more room for more people to get right up to the edge of the water. And so he's standing in the boat. So the point is, these parables are to a large crowd. As we talked about last week, these are actually the last two parables that he gives to the large crowd. After this, he says he goes inside, and he talks only to his apostles in the house. We saw that already because last week he explained the parable of the weeds to his apostles in the house. But here he is, he's standing outside in the boat, so this is still to the large crowd. Matthew 13, 31 through 35 says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So this is a parable a lot of you have probably heard before. And there's probably a lot of things you've heard about the mustard seed. In fact, this isn't the only time Jesus has used the mustard seed for an illustration, right? He also said, if you have faith, the size of the mustard seed. And there he emphasized the smallness of the mustard seed. That's emphasized in this parable a little bit too. He says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, and yet it produces the largest of garden plants. And I, so we can start there. But I bet there are some things you didn't know about the mustard seed, or I suspect there are. And I think when Jesus gives this parable, there's things that the Israelites, that the people listening, that the crowd, that the public would have understood that we don't necessarily understand, we don't hear. So I want to take a moment to talk about what we know and what they would have known about the mustard seed. So the first thing, again, again, probably you've heard about is the size of the mustard seed. And this is true, a mustard seed is tiny. That picture right there is actually, that's a picture of someone holding a mustard seed. So it's very, very small. But I don't even know if that gives you the idea of how small it is. So you know that grain of rice you've all got? That grain of rice is five times larger than your typical mustard seed. So the, the mustard seed is smaller than the grain of rice. In fact, here's a, uh, here's a picture. Uh, it's mustard seeds on the right, grains of rice, I'm sorry, from your perspective, yeah, yeah. yeah. mustard seeds on the right, <laughs> grains of rice on the left. And, uh, and usually a mustard seed is about one to two millimeters, and a grain of rice, and a half grain of rice is about five uh, and a half millimeters. So somewhere from two to five times the size. And so this is, this is how small it is. So it is true, it is true that a mustard seed is very, very tiny. That's true. That's one thing we know. So it is interesting when Jesus says, I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of heaven, and he starts by describing it as being this tiny, tiny thing. But I actually think that's only part of the equation, and it's not the most shocking thing to the Israelites. The most shocking thing 
was that this. The mustard seed was despised. Now, why is the mustard seed despised? For me, that's an easy question. I think mustard is gross. But for some people who really like the way mustard tastes, you might say, why is the mustard seed despised? It is so despised, in fact, that here it comes. It was illegal to plant a mustard seed in a public garden in Rome. And the reason it was illegal to, pl to, to plant a mustard seed in a public garden in Rome is because nobody liked the mustard seed. It was despised. Now, let's think about this a second, because the other thing you know about the mustard seed, or you think you know about the mustard seed, is that it's very tiny, but it produces the largest of all trees. That's actually not what Jesus says. First of all, it's not going to produce an oak or redwood or one of those mammoth trees. That's not what he's saying. He actually says it produces the largest of all garden plants. Garden plants are typically not that large. And it's true that the mustard seed can produce a plant which is six feet high. Sometimes, sometimes in ideal conditions, they can get up to 20 feet. But that's unusual. And the fact is that where Jesus is, at the time he's speaking, probably your typical mustard plant was going to be about six feet high, which is pretty good size in a garden. But Jesus doesn't say it's the tallest of all plants. He does say it becomes a tree. That's a bit of a stretch. It's a little bit much, I think. A little hyperbole. But there's actually a different sort of largeness that Jesus is talking about here. There's something else that he's responding to. It's the same thing. What he's responding to is the same thing that makes it despised. The mustard tree was illegal to plant in the public garden because it was essentially a weed. The mustard seed, when you planted it in a garden, what it did is it grew everywhere. It would pop up, and then it would be like a vine that went under the ground and above the ground and all over the garden, and it would pop up somewhere else that you didn't expect it to pop up. We have, in our house, right, or not in our house, that would be worse. In our front yard right now, we have a, a poplar tree. This is our poplar tree right here. I don't know if you can see that picture, but it's just a tree. This is a poplar tree in our front yard. It's fine. It's a fine tree. It's actually, part of it is dying. You can probably see that, those of you who are horticulturalists or whatever the word is. Um, it's, uh, it's probably dying. But here's what I want you to see. I did a little video. So this is the tree itself, okay? Now, as you go across our, our rock uh, yard here, keep going, keep going. We're going all the way to the other end of the yard. That right there is also the poplar tree. <laughs> it's actually gone across our yard, come up there. Oh, that's also the poplar tree. And then on the other side of our yard, that's also the poplar tree. Our yard is actually surrounded by the poplar tree. All the corners have become uh, surrounded by this. And my wife keeps saying to me, we need to get those up, but pretty soon they're going to take over the entire yard. And this is the way a mustard seed was. Here's your typical mustard field. It doesn't look ugly, but you can imagine if, that, if you weren't trying to grow a mustard garden, that would be a problem. <laughs> right? What's interesting is that your typical mustard plant may be six feet tall, but it can be 20, 30, 40 feet wide. It can expand across the entire garden. Even just the, the main plant can be that wide. It can be like a shrub or a bush. But then think of the way it just kind of creeps along the entire garden. So think about this for a moment from the people who are listening, because again, it's important to understand why Jesus uses the parable he does and the parables he does. Remember, he's trying to get their attention. He wants them to think differently. 
So here he is, he's speaking to a bunch of Israelites, and he's saying, he's even speaking to some Romans, and he's saying, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. And when you say the phrase kingdom of heaven, the images that come to mind for the Israelites, for the Romans, for everybody listening, the images that would come to mind would be Mount Olympus. The images that come to mind would be majestic palaces of David. The images that come to mind would be these incredible, beautiful temples. The images that come to mind would be glory and majesty and largeness and beauty. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a weed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And right away they think, wow, it's really tiny. But not only is that really tiny, that's really not glorious. And you can imagine them just thinking, you know, maybe they even start to, to titter and giggle a little bit. And maybe someone in the back of the crowd's like, has this guy never seen a mustard plant? Is, what an embarrassing mistake Jesus has made. Right? Maybe that's what some of them thought. How can he compare his kingdom to this incredible, despised, and tiny plant? How can the kingdom of heaven not be about majestic palaces and large temples and influential people and glorious images? Is this a joke? What kind of parable is this that he's telling? What is it that he's trying to communicate? It's not just the smallness. Let's kind of recap what we know about the mustard seed now. We know that it's tiny. We know that it was despised. But what's the third thing he says about it? And everyone knows this is true of the mustard seed. It takes over the garden. <laughs> By the time you're done, it has changed the garden. The garden is now something else. Why do you not plant mustard seeds in public gardens? Because when you do, that's what the garden becomes. So it's small, and it's under the radar, and, and people don't like it because as it goes and goes and goes, it changes the very essence and the very nature of the garden. I was trying to think about what would be an equivalent today, and, and it's interesting because trying to find something that I think would have the same sort of shocking impact that Jesus has are all things that I want to shy away from because they feel extreme and they feel bad. But I think that's kind of the point. <laughs> Not that the kingdom of heaven is bad, but that our expectations of what it looks like are different. I think in many ways, if Jesus were here today, perhaps, I don't know this, but perhaps he would say something like, the kingdom of heaven is like a virus. It spreads from person to person to person. It's the smallest thing you can imagine. How big is a virus compared to a mustard seed? I don't even know how to do the calculation on that. It's very, very tiny. It's the smallest thing you can imagine, and yet, it's changed the whole world, hasn't it? I think it's that kind of shock that he wants to give them, that kind of ability to see that something small, even something despised, nonetheless changes the world. And it changes by passing from person to person. The mustard seed changes by passing from plant to plant, from space to space. In little incremental changes, it grows and it flourishes. And before you know it, here we are. He goes on, in case anybody missed the point, tells a second parable. I think he wants them to know, no, I didn't make a mistake. 
I didn't make an embarrassing mistake. I meant to tell the story that way. And he tells another one. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Yeast is also small, isn't it? It's this tiny little stuff, this powder almost. And you take this yeast, and, and this person works it through the whole dough. And what's interesting about yeast is we, I like, I like, I like yeast bread. I like bread with yeast in it. But remember who he's speaking to. This is the Israelites. And for much of their history and tradition, they've been taught that yeast, not always, but often, is a symbol of sin or a symbol of something bad. There's a certain distaste for it, right? When they have their festivals, what are they asked to use? Unleavened bread, bread without yeast. Now, I do want to be clear, because you will hear occasionally commentators say this can't be referring to the same thing, that this isn't really like the good things in the kingdom of heaven, because they'll tell you that yeast is always bad, but that isn't true. In fact, in the law, there's actually what's called a wave offering, which is a bread that is filled with yeast that they are supposed to offer to God. So yeast isn't always bad, that isn't my point. But it does have a certain sort of feel, right, to the Israelites to hear the kingdom of God is like yeast. When Jesus has other places called yeast sin, he's not saying it is now. He's not saying it's bad. But like the mustard seed, it's underestimated, isn't it? Like the mustard seed is small, and the people hearing it may despise it. But the point is the same. Once again, it changes everything that it touches, doesn't it? That entire dough, it isn't just part of the dough which changes. It's not like part of it rises and part of it doesn't. It all rises. It's all impacted by the yeast. The parallels are clear. We have a very small thing, which may even be despised for its smallness, which then grows and spreads and changes everything. It goes on to say, this is a moment where we have the reiteration about why Jesus speaks in parables. It says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using the parable. So what was fulfilled was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Again, Jesus speaks in parables so that people will think, they will contemplate. And as he speaks to them about the kingdom of heaven in this really unorthodox way, he wants them to stop and say, how? How is it like a mustard seed? How? How is it like this? That's... That sounds good to us. We're so used to the parable, we just think small things become big things, and that feels comfortable to us. But he wants them to wrestle with the discomfort that the kingdom of heaven may not look the way they thought they did. And one of the biggest things he wants them to wrestle with is that the idea of power that they have is not God's idea of power. I think as much as we sort of have heard this principle taught and understand this principle, from what I can see in our culture as American Christians, we have to wrestle with this again. Because I think that our idea, our understanding of how God works through things is still far too dependent on the idea that God is dependent on our ideas of power. That God can only work through big things. Or at least that he can work better through big things. We might say, if look at what he can do through a mustard seed, imagine what he could do through a baseball. Imagine what he could do through a watermelon. I realize a watermelon seed, well, a watermelon seed is still bigger than a mustard seed. Imagine what he could do through something bigger. This is actually a fairly new phenomenon for us. We, we, we in America have gotten used to the idea of the megachurch, the power of the megachurch, the power of the large church. And this is actually only goes, this goes back to the 70s. The, the megachurch kind of erupted in the 70s, and we've gotten this idea 
that the, the powerful churches, the successful churches, are the ones that have a steady stream of lots and lots of people. I have led churches, and I've seen this weird connection that we have in morale and the number of people that attend a particular service. One of the reasons I started Focus the way I did was I wanted to remove that sense. I wanted it to be okay to have like eight people sitting in the same room and have that not mean and signify to people that the church wasn't flourishing. And the reality is that each of the eight people sitting in this room are in groups where they see the church flourish, where they see discipleship happen, and because of that, they don't lose morale when they look at it this way. I mean, it's just complicated, right? I don't know how many people are on Zoom, how many people are on Facebook, I don't even know how to add up the numbers, but we're not a megachurch. Well, don't laugh so hard. <laughs> Absolutely, we're not a megachurch. But that idea, what's interesting to me is that that's a purely American phenomenon. If you look through the history of the church, certainly there have been times when the church has been powerful and large. Do you know what's interesting? Those have rarely been our best moments. The moments in history when the church is most powerful and most large, I'm not saying they've all been bad, but those are rarely our best moments. And even today, even today, even in America, not only do we not recognize that the church has flourished in Russia and China and the Middle East and other places where it's flourished without the ability to meet in large gatherings, where it's flourished in small, intimate groups of people, not only is that true across the world today, but even in America, it's true. What we forget, or have never been aware of, is that the average-sized church in America has consistently been around 75 people for the last several decades. And you have to ask yourself at some point, is that because every good man and woman of faith who's tried to start a church and only had 75 has failed? Or is it because our perspective that the church should be a megachurch is not the accurate picture? See, the thing that we begin to forget, the thing we need to begin to remember, is not just that God can work through small things, but everything we see about Scripture is that God loves to work through small things. We could go example after example after example through Scripture and see how frequently God chooses to use the less powerful, less influential, less admired person or organization or group. You know the story of Gideon, right? Gideon has an army. He has a pretty sizable army. And before God sends him out to fight, he says, let me winnow your army down to one-tenth the size it currently is. Because I want to work through a smaller army. I don't need a bigger army. I don't even want a bigger could it be that if you sit around and you say to yourself, I'm unimportant, I'm uninfluential, I'm just a small cog in the wheel of God's machine, could it be that God says, that's exactly the person I want to work with? We even think of Paul this way, right? Think about Paul for a moment. We think how amazing Paul is, right? He had zeal, he had ambition, he, was, he had personality, he had smarts, he had power, he had influence. And we think, no wonder God used him because he had all these things. But you know that's not how Paul sees his own life? Paul says, I had all those things, and it wasn't until God took all those away that he began to use me. And Paul says of himself, I am the least of all the servants of God. 
And he's not being falsely humble. He's saying, this is what I see. And talk about despised. Let us not forget that because of Paul's conversion, for a while he was just like Matthew. He was despised by everybody. The church had to go through a process of deciding whether they could trust him, let alone forgive him for the, the murder that he had been involved in of Christians. And do you think that the, the Jews liked Paul when he betrayed them to become a Christian? <laughs> do you think the Romans had any sort of uh, affection for Paul? It's an interesting thing that the moment that Paul becomes small and despised, he becomes one of the most influential people in God's church. And to hear Paul speak, he says it's not in spite of that. He says that's how God chooses to do it. That's how God likes to do it. And this is why I think we have to wrestle with this. Again, I'm not saying that somebody who has talents is like, is like lower in the kingdom of heaven. The truth is, the kingdom of heaven before God were all small. But I do want us to, you know, I think about the number of times as a, as a pastor in my life, I've literally heard people say many times, if this person would just get saved, they have the talents, they could really do something good, big for the kingdom of God. And I think, well, that's weird. Because that makes it sound, again, like God is dependent upon you having a certain set of talents for him to do what needs to be done. Which, by the way, if it was true, he can give you those talents. <laughs> when we are looking for power. When we're looking to change the world, we don't look for the small and the despised. We seek the admired. We think of people who to us look like Paul, ambitious and zealous and smart and powerful, instead of remembering, he says that what worked was that God's strength was perfected in his smallness, in his weakness. It's an interesting thing about Paul saying, we see that God changes names all the time. Changed Abram to Abraham, Peter's, I mean Simon to Peter. He likes to change the names of people to show who they are in relation to him. To show that they've been changed. They've become new people under his his hand. And Paul's original name before his conversion is Saul. And Saul is the name of the first king of Israel. Now you may know the story that Saul wasn't a great king, but nonetheless being named after the first king of Israel is a glorious thing. It's a great thing. And Saul himself, as the first king of Israel, was tall and handsome and mighty and strong. He was like the guy you'd expect would be the king. Remember when David comes along, he's the last choice in the family. <laughs> he's, he's not the biggest. He's not the strongest. He's just David. So Saul is named Saul, and then after he converts he goes by the name Paul. And Paul is a word which means little. Saul decides to go from being named for the tall, glorious, majestic king of Israel to being named small. Because this is what he understood it meant to be God's servant. But we seek the admired. But God is not starstruck by celebrity, he seeks out those who are despised and small by the world. We seek the powerful. 
We have an image of what it means to be powerful. We think, again, if we can influence the politicians, the celebrities, the education, the journalists, the press, what we do when we do that is we're looking at the wrong plants. We're looking at the bigger seeds, the bigger, taller trees, but we're not looking at the ones which are quietly changing the whole earth. We seek the large. It's still hard when you think about, even at Focus, when we try to assess how are we doing we want to assess by discipleship. We want to assess by lives changed. We want to assess by people following the Lord Jesus as their Lord. That's hard to assess by. It's much easier to count, isn't it? <laughs> we have three groups, and now we have five groups. We have three leaders, and now we have ten leaders. Those are all true, and perhaps there's some sign of help, but it's so hard not to begin to assess by size. But here's what I really think. I mentioned the average church size is 75, and here's what I really think we forget. And I think this is really, really true. I think this is undoubtedly true. I think if you think about it for a little bit, you'll see this is true. The work of the last three decades, the megachurches have had their part. I'm not here to say megachurches are bad. The work of the last three decades, the change that's happened in people's lives, the discipleship, the heart, the, 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 the lives that have come to the Lord. It's been done mostly by men and women who do not make a big splash. Pastors of churches of 75 or smaller, congregational members of churches of 75 or smaller, the mother who disciples her children, the teacher who disciples their students, the neighbor who disciples his neighbors, the people who don't make a big splash when they succeed, do you know what else? They don't make a big splash if they fail. How many megachurch pastors, how many times have we seen, I'm not saying it's inevitable, how many times have we seen a big name, large celebrity pastor fall? What kind of impact does that have on the garden? But for every one of those, there's a dozen, there's a hundred men and women quietly doing the work, changing the earth. I think the bottom line is this. We seek the admired, we seek the large, we seek the powerful, and we think that this is how the kingdom of heaven grows. We need to do it this way. But the truth is that God is not obligated to honor our view of power. And one thing that scripture tells us is that he really doesn't. God doesn't see power the way we see power. And this is where I think I'm still wrestling with it enough myself that I'm unable to articulate it, I think, as well as it deserves to be articulated. And all I can say to you is, like Jesus, think about the parable of the mustard seed. Think about the parable of the yeast and ask yourself, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that the kingdom of heaven is not like a tidal wave that rushes out with the bulletin boards and the large, large events, but that the kingdom of heaven moves forward in small and despised people, in small and unimpressive ways? And that this is how God chooses to work and always has worked. 
If you need other examples, there's just so many. Abraham was one man, and God said, from you will come a nation that will change the world. Mustard seed, a mustard plant. David was not the most impressive of the sons of Jesse. Saul mocked him all his life by saying, is this not just a shepherd, the son of a shepherd? Well, he mocked him all Saul's life. <laughs> At a certain point, he wasn't around anymore to mock David, but you get the idea. How about the apostles? I'm sure you've heard and you know the stories. Jesus did not pick the most impressive to be his apostles. Matthew himself is testimony to that. The despised, the small, the outcast. He picked people that were frustrated at their attempts to change the world and not manage it. Peter was a zealot who had been pushing for revolution for who knows how long with no success. We would say of him, well, there's a man who shows no leadership potential. This is the man of whom Jesus said, I'm going to lead my church forward. John and James' mom thought that they should sit at the right hand of Jesus. As she should. But whose mom doesn't think that? <laughs> Even if Jesus, one of his own disciples, said, Did he just come from Nazareth? Does any good thing come from Nazareth? What about Jesus? Was, he had angels, and that's pretty good. I'll grant you that. That's a big splash. But who seems to remember those angels the day after they happened? We do. We sing about it. That didn't happen for 33 years, <laughs> at least. Jesus is born in a manger at a feeding trough. Jesus is born humbly to a carpenter. He lives a humble life. We already talked about Paul. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You want to be challenged? Go read the Sermon on the Mount. And read how much of it is about Jesus challenging your idea of power. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's nice to think, but do you believe that? Is he just trying to make the meek feel better, or does Jesus actually mean something about that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What? Jesus says the poor, the weak, the meek, the powerless, these are the people that make up the kingdom of heaven. In fact, while Jesus says everyone is welcome to the kingdom of heaven, the people, he says, will have the hardest time hearing his message are those who find themselves just a little bit too important, a little bit too powerful, with a little bit too much access to everything else, not enough willingness to be part of a kingdom which courts the ragamuffin. In fact, if we're really honest, as we go through these lists of examples, the name that should be at the next on this list, the name that should be on the bottom of this list, and mine, but it should be yours. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. This is his pep talk. I always thought it was a funny sort of pep talk. Because this is how it begins. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. He's talking about them. To shame the wise. He's talking about you. And he's talking about me. God chose the weak things of the world. 
to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The message of the mustard seed is that we have got to change the way we think about power. And I think the church in America is wrestling with that identity of what it means to be a mustard seed rather than a towering oak or a really big red one. It feels better to be powerful. <laughs> it feels better to have people tell you how important you are. It feels better to be told you're amazing. And, and this is not to say God doesn't do this. Daniel had a place in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Joseph had a place among the Pharaoh of Egypt. But both of these men were mustard seeds when they started. And so many others end up changing the world without first becoming leaders in their particular fields. For every Daniel, there have to be a hundred people who are not, a thousand people who are not, a million people who are not. There's only room for one. <laughs> and it should be encouraging to us to know that Jesus chooses. God delights in working with the small and, at least in the world's eyes, the despised. So this is what we've learned. Everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is wanted, but not everyone wants it. Weeding is not your job, and God loves to work through the small things. I want you guys to think about it, those of you who are part of Focus Church, which to me means part of our groups. If you're in a Focus group, you are a member of Focus Church. It's that simple. You don't have to sign a covenant or make a commitment. If you're there, you're part of Focus Church. And we truly, truly, truly believe that the kingdom of heaven grows through those intimate groups, through the relationships between people, through the gifts of God's grace that pass from me to you, from you to someone else, from that someone else to someone else to back you. Those moment-by-moment moment interactions which seem small to you are the way the mustard seed grows. Even you will despise those moments. God says to Zephaniah at one point, or through Zephaniah to the Israelites, he says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. We've got to be okay with small. We've got to be okay with weak. We've got to be okay with recognizing that part of the reason God chooses to do that is because God wants people to be enamored with who he is, not with who you are. He thinks you're great. He's kind of enamored with who you are. But he wants people to be enamored with who he is. He wants people to see his power radiate through you, because it can radiate through you, it can radiate through them. In the kingdom of heaven, no one is truly despised. God wants to affirm that 
by working through those, do all this happen. <laughs> by working through the small moments, the small things, the things we overlook. So just remember that when you're in your focus groups. When you have that meeting and you feel like, it's an interesting day, nothing happened today. I don't know. Maybe it was a mustard seed moment, you just haven't seen it yet. Maybe it changed someone's life and you don't even know it yet. Maybe it changed yours and it just hasn't blossomed yet. When you love your neighbor outside of our groups, it's those moments in which the kingdom of heaven grows. Those speak and change things much more than if you have an opportunity or, or you see someone speak at a large conference or you see someone speak and they're on TV or, or you see a celebrity, a politician who's a believer. They have their work that God does through them. God chooses and loves to work through the small things. I, I could go on and on, but if it did, it would just be because I feel like I can't capture as strongly what Jesus says in his parables as I'd like to. So I'm just going to point you back again to the parables. Wrestle with it this week. Take time to think about it. Chew on it. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? Small and despised. Like yeast in a dough. Small and insignificant. But it changes everything. It changes it forever. It can't go back. I read one commentator who said the mustard seed cannot be destroyed. He said that in big house. I kind of doubt that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think most things can be destroyed. <laughs> I'm not aware of anything, actually. Um, unless mustard plants are made out of cockroaches, that might be the only way. But, uh, you know, the, what's that? Grind it up, add some water and vinegar, and you have a great topping for a hot dog. There you go. <laughs> so it was a weird comment, but I think the point was, once it takes over a garden, it's kind of, you can't unring that bell. It's really hard to change it back. And, and those of you who live in New Mexico and are familiar with our wild flowers, a.k.a. weeds, you probably are familiar with that, too. All right. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.